0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Ash Tsunami podcast. This weekend we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 39, our look at early diagnosis models, plus from The Vault, a 2021 conversation that sheds light on similar issues. This conversation focuses on behaviors that seem to lie outside the model but should actually be incorporated. And, after that, we go on to the wrap-up question. On the first point, Louise identifies two costs inherent in the model and asks their impact, which leaves Ian to note that these do not figure in the model, which means the model will require additional adjustment. Note, both of those have to do with patient assessment and treatment at the outset. This also leads to a discussion of how important policy issues are in improving treatment and reducing cost of fatty liver disease, with Ian and Louise both commenting on the likely effect of an advertising cutback or ban on certain kinds of unhealthy food products like soda and sweets. On the wrap-up question, I ask what additional research panelists would like to see, followed by a question about what behaviors they believe should change now. For a group of only three people, our answers vary significantly, not because we disagree, but because we focus on different elements of the overall issue. As we've all heard on this podcast over the years, late diagnosis costs money and haunts patients who live with the severe downstream consequences of a disease that became more severe while physicians assured them that it was not an issue and did not need to be treated until it was late. This model provides insight into Steps that might bring earlier treatment to the patients who need it at a socially acceptable cost. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell.
1: ILFT, I presume that 100% of people you picked up with ILFT went through the pathway, did they? Yeah. And yet you found that very expensive because John Dillon, I was there in Barcelona when he was presenting. Even with people who did ILFT and had signed up for it, Roger, remind me if I'm inaccurate here, only 55% of them did not refer the patients picked up on ILFT into the services. So you do all of those tests, which are expensive, and you only refer in about 45%. That obviously has huge cost implications and would make that even more expensive by my way of thinking on your modeling than
0: even you should. Or is that in the model already? Ian Rowe. Uh,
2: that's two changes in the model. That I, I have to really think about that when that, when <laughs> when that happens because you'll reduce I'm some just... costs by people not attending appointments. But well, the di- That's, the di- not, that's yeah. not good though, right? No, no, it isn't good, but the diagnosis has been made. So in the model, it might, um, you know, unless you say that the diagnosis can only be made by a specialist, it'd probably make the model look better. But that's because the outcome is cost per diagnosis. It's not, not what happens in the long term. And I would like to think that the patients who've got treatable liver disease coming to see a specialist is a is value and will impact on their long-term outcome. ILFT is a very attractive strategy because... In the UK, at least, there are guidelines that are not adhered to about testing patients for liver disease where there's abnormal tests, and it streamlines the process. It makes it easier for um, primary care doctors to get the tests that they need to get the answer to the question that they're asking. The issue is really that for many of those patients, they don't need all of those tests, and and I think we can probably be a bit smarter about how they're employed. And I know that you know that John and his team in Dundee are iterating that algorithm constantly to try and improve its, it, the way that it works, and you know that this. The analysis here is a snapshot of what was published the last time it was published, but it may be that it's different underneath now. And that's one of the values of these automated strategies is that you can learn and learn quite quickly from from information that you get through.
0: So Louise, do you have anything? I I feel like I can't monopolise the last two openings. Go ahead.
1: I had a question because I wrote it down when I was reading the research, uh, when I was reading the piece earlier. And and it was like, we know that poor liver health and liver disease is now the second leading cause of working lives lost. The Easel Lancet Commission last year. Published that in December, I think. Healthcare, your sort of study. One in six, for example, in the UK, I believe, are still in, are employed by the NHS. The NHS is not a fit healthcare set of personnel. Forty percent on the RCN statistics of nurses are overweight. We should have a sign that might like, do not feed the animals at the zoo. We do not feed our healthcare staff chocolates and <laughs> and our doctors and our fizzy, fizzy drinks. Is it time? to put these sort of pathways into workforce because workforce is where it, we're losing blinds and we've got opportunities workforce health is massive and the NHS should we be looking at home to try some of these strategies ourselves <laughs> I know that's a way out what thing, but I was thinking, we've got a mass population, we've all got our own healthcare, What should we be trying to look at our own health?
0: Please note, for anybody that has not seen either Louise or Ian or me or all of us, that none of us would necessarily fit into the 40% category that Louise is talking about, so we're just making this recommendation for everybody else, right? No denial at all, because cause yeah. we're, we're all pretty fit. <laughs> So that's where all those apple pies catch up. Okay, Ian, go ahead. Yeah,
2: the, yeah. the other disclaimer is for any patients listening, I'll still accept chocolates as, as gifts after after clinic. The, uh, <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> fundamental importance. But um, no, I mean, it, it, in all seriousness, I'm sure that there are things that we can do to improve the health and well-being of our workforce. Whether this is the starting point or whether it's somewhere else, I don't know. But I think a large proportion of people have relatively sed- sedentary activities in you know, working life today because of, you know, All constantly tied to computer screens. I mean, here we are, three of us, you know, looking at our screens, talking to each other, Um, but
0: thinking about our next chocolate fix, right? Yeah, I know, I know. know, um,
2: So so, so yes, I think think we, you know, we do need to do more. The issue around working years of life lost to liver disease, and the the reality is, is the vast majority of those, well over eighty percent, is due to alcohol-related liver disease, and you know, and, and we we have to we have to remember that because in terms of addressing the real drivers of disease, that has to be number one, and you know no doubt there is excessive and problem drinking among employees of all big organizations and, and if we can you know help people address that as a risk factor I, I guess that we'll do we'll do a lot of good from another point of view and from a general health and society point of view too but those would be those would be my pleas really activity uh chocolate still to clinic please and um <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, yeah and, and screening for that you know and, and talking about and being open about alcohol um, and and i think in healthcare that's hard but
1: just going back in ilse Health and well-being departments within big firms, they offer screening. But actually, the strength of what you detailed with fibrosis first actually doesn't look to stigmatise. It looks to just screen for opportunities for more common diseases and could easily be added to a healthcare screen because at the moment it's completely ignored. So we are, we're we not even looking for that. Uh, so therefore opportunities like simplified pathways give us different areas that we can implement them in and, and yes that would require more research it would require firms to say yes we're going to take an interest in liver health in our populations but I think that's the beauty. Beauty of when you look at what you're doing there by comparing different strategies of where they can also be implemented, not only just in mainstream healthcare, which is where we always target but there are so many areas now contributing to mainstream healthcare that can help the NASH pandemic, the alcohol problems. They've all suffered in the workforce following the pandemic for exactly the same reasons you've detailed out there with alcohol, but BMI in the UK has gone up. It's gone up in, around the world, US, and it becomes a workforce issue. And we know liver health is public health. Public health is also workforce health. So maybe looking, we had a great announcement today. I think it was, and Ian, you might be aware, the tube advertising for sugar drinks and high-fat food has been stopped or reduced. And they reckon it's saved over a billion pounds for NHS healthcare for children's obesity. I don't know where they get those figures from or how they calculated them, but those are great announcements about advertising because I didn't see any of where we got that data from. It's just guesswork.
2: Yeah, in many ways, that shows where we really should be working, you know, its policy and and all of those, those other things. That's an interesting study. I've only seen the news about it. I haven't seen the study, but it looks like it's come from the Whitehall study, which was a study of principally men working in Whitehall in the 1970s and uh, consenting to long-term follow-up, um, and they extrapolate the data from that study to the general population and in this case of, of London, and they think that over the course of whatever it is, three or four years since they stopped the advertising on all transport for London, uh, that they they saved several thousand cases of diabetes and uh, people not becoming obese against the trajectory that they would otherwise have had. So there's, you know, there's some uncertainties around that. But it, you know, in terms of overall benefit for the population, that's going. You know, that's it. We could do lots of testing, but just advertise less and control the environment. Well,
0: actually, but probably both, right? Because if you advertise less, it's a little bit like putting your foot on the hose, but you still get an awful lot of water in the hose before where you put your foot on is where you're coming from. I'll tell you, I, I think this is. It's fascinating. makes clear that if what you want to focus on is fibrosis, that focusing directly on fibrosis is a very cost-effective way to capture, well, you said there are 450 total cases and fibrosis first gets three eighty seven, so you get what, 85% of cases? Something like that with that algorithm. It also suggests that doing a better job of getting TE done in primary care will have both that benefit. And if you miss by a little bit, then you start capturing what Louise is talking about, which is people who might not be fibrotic yet, but uh, who've got a bunch of liver fat, where if they knew about it. They might be motivated in some kind of uh, change in lifestyle, or change in behavior that might last two, three, four, five years with minimal screening. That's not in the economics, I think, of what you've created here, in but I think it's very much in the reality of care. So if you're going to look to do three things, one would be fibrosis first to get to the people who need to be an hepatologist now, um, some kind of expanded use of TE to help people who may not need to be in a, in a hepatologist now, but have liver and pancreas fat issues that are going to cause downstream health problems. And then, as you say, going back up to the top and, and, and putting your foot on the hose where policy is by stopping advertising and a couple of things like that. Does that all make sense? Am I getting that right? That
2: does make sense. And in some ways, the potential value of FibroScan is, is the interaction with the practitioner. And that, that gives you the opportunity to deliver a, a brief intervention of whatever type at, at the time of the, the scan, which if it's solely blood-based, you don't you don't get because you're going, you go know, in, in the UK, see so a phlebotomist and, and they, they take your blood and, and you go away again without, there's no message that can be delivered at that point. Whereas the time of the scan, there's the potential to do that and with the appropriate testing and evaluation, you know you can begin to understand what the what the wider impacts of that would be. Um, and doing that in primary care makes absolute sense.
0: All right, so we are now slightly past the bottom of the hour, which is a good time, I think, to start to wrap up. So Ian, then Louise, then me, I guess. What would you like to see come out of this study? A, in terms of further research, and B, in terms of changes in action or behaviour within the healthcare system. Yes,
2: sir. Personally, I want to see this result in a, in a trial of the effectiveness of fibrosis first versus current standard of care. And, and that, that might be possible in a, in a UK framework or it might not, depending on exactly what the commissioners of research want. Um, but that's certainly the direction of, of travel and built alongside that evaluations of the impact of diagnosis on behaviour change. Exactly along the lines of as we've as we've talked about, and I think that, that in parallel, those two studies will take us quite a bit further than we are now.
0: Okay, so that's what we should study. What do we know enough from these results to do differently? Is there anything?
2: Well, I think you can you can see from the, the results the value of deploying fibrosis testing now. You know, even even if it's only in risk stratification, and that is in international guidance but not in a universal practice standard of care. So the focus should be on using those tests, whether it's Fib4 and ELF or Fib4 and and FibroScan or, you know, ARFI or whatever it is, just, it it probably doesn't matter which one it is, just do one of them because we know that that will find a greater proportion of people who've got potentially
0: treatable liver disease than if we don't do that. Louise, research you'd like to see, behaviour you'd like to see within the system?
1: I'd like to see everything that Ian's just discussed there because I think it comes from a sound background. I'd also like to see quality of life and behaviour measurement tools within that to see whether or not... And I would put a head-to-head against ELF and against ARFI or whatever so that you can determine which devices make people's change and whether or not it's the blood tests with the report and the results, whether or not... Because I think that does need to be teased out. We're getting more and more of that evidence. There is always the, oh, yeah, but it could be done with this or it could be done with that. Actually, there's multiple ways of doing it. Is it the nurse? it, It has to be about somebody and, yeah... I've got what. Well. 15, 16 years Fibre scan experience but I'm also a mental health nurse by background but I'm also 38, 6 years 37 years in hepatology I know what to talk to patients about a lot of patients it's about what they need at that moment in time that may change but you've got to make it understandable one of the abilities of primary care is to be able to deploy these tests into primary care and learn a language that's understandable that somebody then can pop back to their GP and do that have that conversation or to pop into the practice nurse when you go to highly specialised units, often several hours drive from people's homes or train journeys or real difficulties, people are less engaged to then ask those questions, which means you get less of an impact or it becomes more scary. And I think the one thing we don't want to do, people, liver health is a slow changing progress for most people if we find it early enough. What we're getting now is this real problem of a lot of advanced disease that is untreatable, as Ian said, and we've said, many times or cancer where we don't have an option. So liver disease is racking up as a really scary disease to be diagnosed with. Let's get there early and make it something. I want to know about my liver health because I don't want to get the scary. And I think we do have to change the narrative. But when we've got primary care or people who say, oh, liver disease... Too scary. Send to a hepatologist. That's not helping. We need it. Liver disease is simple. It is the one organ that controls the health of most of the rest of the body. It's your balance and equilibrium. Just check it and then find it early. We'll do something about it. Tell them to us. Let us talk to people. But education is going to be key as part of this line. And these these early strategies are really key. There was another poster at Easel that was really good on the fears of primary care. And it was lack of education, lack of knowledge of how to deploy these tests. And that's where we need to target stuff that Ian's doing now target with what is their weaknesses and they view as their weaknesses and we can achieve really nice things in primary care. Most liver disease should probably be treated in primary care with the right patients going to specialist care. These strategies and these pathways that can be developed have immense potential because what will work in the UK may not work in Middle Eastern Africa or lower areas and developing worlds and different communities will have a different role, but we've got to start with something that diagnoses liver disease earlier and cost effective and certainly shown that nicely. So I would like a trial looking at all of the benefits that we can get out of it, the brief intervention, purely the blood tests, how do we change behavior? That might be a big protocol. We've got some good assessment techniques to be able to do that.
0: And then in my dreams, we would not only be looking at the result on liver, but on other related metabolic conditions because um, I've been waiting for Louise to do this and she hasn't. But I think if I do Louise's five greatest hits from the two and a half years we've been doing this, one of them is Donna Crier turning the Vlad out to you and saying, uh, if I'm dead, it doesn't matter what killed me, I'm dead. This is a really, great look at liver and a really interesting discussion about the most efficient way and most effective way, which isn't necessarily the same thing, to broaden out from liver to getting, motivating people with a earlier stage liver disease and other metabolic conditions to actually uh, take their health in hand and whether TE becomes part of that process or what tests become part of that process and what coaching. But Ian, I kind of feel like if the liver is central to everything else that goes wrong in the body, that this is, I think, a really good look at the most efficient way to look at liver and raises, I think, some really spectacular questions about the degree to which other broader screening techniques, ILFT, for example, or ILFT leading to TE can help us help patients whose issue, who may have liver fat, but, but liver disease might not be their primary issue right now before it gets to be. And then we don't have all those people saying, gee, you could have told me 20 years ago that I could do something about this. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, August 10th. Mazza Nouradine and Michelle Long will join us to discuss their recent paper on lean Nash management. Please join us. And until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.